Good morning, new community. My name is Justin Bowers, and I am the lead pastor here. Uh, and we're so glad you're streaming our services online, glad to be with you. Welcome to week three of our series that we've called Close Quarters. In this series, we're talking about how we're loving the ones that we're closest to, loving the ones that we're often in tight spaces with. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we're in this strange season. Um, and in this strange season, I keep hearing people use this phrase, do you remember when? Have you heard that? As we're staying at home, we're adjusting to new normal. I've heard people say, do you remember when? And then they'll tell some sort of a story, a story about re remembering when we could go to a movie theater or a football game together or a concert or a, a story about hanging out with friends. I I've even heard people talking about, do you remember when we could just hug each other? And we're longing for that. We're pretty nostalgic as human beings, aren't we? Like, as humans, we, we love to remember the good things, or we love to remember how we overcame the hard things. We've all, maybe, maybe you and I and others you know, have had parents or grandparents who remember overcoming their struggles. We even have this cultural joke, right? When I was a kid, I had to fill in the blank, walk uphill both ways in the snow. We remember that stuff. So it's almost like we have a hard time. We like remembering so well that we almost have a hard time being in the present. We spend a lot of time either remembering the good of the past or remembering how we overcame the hard of the past. But the other thing is we, we spend a lot of time focused on the future as well. We, we do a lot of anticipating. People are even now saying things like, I can't wait for, I can't wait until we can go out to eat, or I can't wait till we can throw a party. So we anticipate and we remember. We even anticipate what we remember. I can't wait till we can get back to the way things used to be. But the present can be hard for us as humans. Those of you with kids, you know this. I, I bet if you've been to Disney, parents, I bet if you've ever made that pilgrimage somewhere along the line, you had a conversation with your spouse where you said, if we go now, if we go to Disney, maybe your kids were young, if we go now, will they remember it? Are they too young? Are they going to remember this incredible experience? And what we were really asking was all the energy, all the time, all the money, all the resources that we put into a trip like that, is it worth it if they can't remember it? So we've been having this conversation here for several weeks now in our online gatherings about the stress that our relationships can face in close quarters. And we've been talking about this and how it's tough to keep loving well when, they're, when we're in the midst of that stress in tight spaces. And often because of our stress, we end up hurting the people that we're called to love the most. We hurt our spouse. We hurt our kids. We hurt our neighbors, our friends, our roommates. If we don't understand how to love well in the midst of those tight spaces, and it has a lot to do with how we engage the present. You know, to lead us in these conversations, we've been exploring a passage of Scripture that theologians actually call the desert narratives, the wilderness narratives. And it's the story of Moses and the Israelites, the people of God, just after, immediately following their release from slavery in, in Egypt. And it comes out of Exodus 16 through 18. And, and as we talk about these desert passages, we, we see this journey that they make miraculously crossing the Red Sea and coming to this place called Elam where there's fresh water and palm trees. That's what the writer tells us. It's almost like paradise. And, and then they're on their way to Sinai where they'll actually see God reveal himself. He'll teach them the law. 
And in the middle of that, this, de- this desert narrative between Elam and Sinai, two to three million Israelites are trying to cross the wilderness in incredibly close quarters. And so we've talked about that journey. And today I want to tell you about two more kind of quick stories that happen in the midst of this desert wandering. And I want to draw out a few thoughts for us, what it might say to our relationships. In these wilderness narratives, um, right in Exodus 17, there's, there's this story, and it's right after the people have been grumbling about being hungry. We talked about that last week. And God provides quail for them, and God rains down bread from heaven, manna. And, and right after that, the writer tells us that the people set out from the desert, traveling from place to place. And then we're told there was no water for the people to drink, and so they quarreled with Moses. And they yelled out, they cried out, give us water to drink. Now I want you to to grab onto a couple things. In the last passage, last week we talked about this, they're grumbling for food. And here they're quarreling about water. You might say it this way, if it's not one thing, it's another. If it's not food that we're after, then it's water. And the grumbling, they're moving from grumbling into quarreling. It's, it's interesting when we talked a couple weeks about uh, weeks ago about grumbling, we said that the word for grumbling in Hebrew was the word loon, and it actually meant to just settle into the negative space, to just camp out there. The word literally means to camp, and you just refuse to move out of it. I'm not going anywhere, which is a perfect description of grumbling. But, but here we see the grumbling intensify because they're not grumbling anymore, they're quarreling. And this Hebrew word is interesting too. It's the word reeve. And it actually means to make a case, to make a lawsuit, to round people up and make an argument, or even to physically fight. You could say the Israelites' dissatisfaction is intensifying. It's getting rougher. And so is Moses' lack of patience. We're told that after he hears this quarreling, Moses cried out to the Lord. He says, what should I do? These people are ready to kill me. And that's the reality of close quarters, right? We've been talking about this for several weeks. We always grow in exasperation when stress gets worse and worse. And sometimes it results in quarreling. Sometimes we just throw up our hands and we we have no idea how to even do this thing, how to get through this. And, And sometimes God creates the love, the grace, the mercy that we need. He gives us that strength. But But sometimes in our relationships, the minute we feel like we find a way through one stressor, we end up in another stressor. The minute we feel like we've found food, our people are grumbling, quarreling, fighting about water. We, we finally figure out how to pay the bills and then somebody gets sick and there's a new set of hospital bills or, or we get one kid back on the right track in school and another child falls apart or, or we, we resolve a fight maybe that's lasted all week and, and Monday rolls around and we're back to fighting with our spouse. This is where Moses finds himself. He's exasperated. It's moved from one thing to another. And he finally says, God, what do you want from me? The other interesting part of this is that the word for what Moses does, it says he cries out. That phrase in Hebrew is the same phrase that's used when the Israelites early on in the book of Exodus cry out to God for release from their slavery. In both times, in bondage as a people and as a worn out leader, God hears the cry of his people. 
God tells Moses, he says, I want you to go and I want you to take your rod, your staff. I want you to go in front of the people. I want you to go to this place called Horeb and there's gonna be a rock. And he says, I want you to take your rod and I want you to strike the rock and then water will come out. And he does that and water flows. And in the middle of their testing and their quarreling, God demonstrates and reminds his people that he's the provider of the water that quenches them. Now, the other story that I wanna tell you today comes later in the story of the Israelites. It's from Numbers 20, and it's actually very similar to the story in Exodus 17 of water coming from the, the rock. Maybe you're familiar with these from back in Sunday school. Maybe, maybe you get these confused, but the first story that we just talked about takes place early on in the Israelites' journey out of slavery. But the second story takes place much later, right before they're about to get in the promised land. In the first story, Moses strikes the rock and water flows out, and they're, they're Thirst is quenched, and they begin their journey into the wilderness. Some, some rabbis even suggest, the ancient rabbis would say, that they actually took this rock. It was the Israelites' rolling stone, and so they took this rock with them in their journey. And every time they needed water, Moses would strike the rock, and it would flow water. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but such a cool image. Anyway, the story clear over in Numbers chapter 20 echoes this first story, and it's on the opposite side of their journey. It says they're close to the promised land. And in Numbers, we're told the whole Israelite community, two to three million people, are arriving again in a desert place, and we're told once again there was no water for the community, and once again we're told the people quarreled with Moses in opposition. They do the exact same thing. They reeve, they bring that fight, that quarrel, and they begin to wish that they had died, criticizing their leaders, Moses and Aaron. Can you, can you imagine at this point, almost 40 years later, what Moses and Aaron feel like. Maybe, maybe you've felt this in your home, even in this season. You, you just hit a point. I, I have. You just hit a point where there's no patience left. You have nothing left. No idea how to handle it. You hit the peak for stress. Like moms, you've tried to be creative. you tried to keep kids entertained, and you're just done. Or dads, you, you've tried to separate work from home life, and you're trying to figure it out, and you're just finished Students, you feel like your whole life has been undone and you don't know how to survive and you're just stressed out to the max and you just throw up your arms because somewhere, someone in your close quarters makes a statement and starts a quarrel and you have nothing left and you lose it. This is where Moses and Aaron are. Literally, again, it says that they just, they just are like, ugh, and they walk to the tabernacle, the place where they worshiped God, and it says they worshiped. They fell down on their faces and cried out to God. And it says God's glory showed up as they surrendered. And God gives Moses direction again. He says, I want you to go out in front of the people with your rod, because they're thirsty. I want you to take your rod, and I want you to speak to the rock. He doesn't say strike it. He says, I want you to speak to the rock, and it will pour out water. Now, a couple things here that are so interesting to me. First, we're told in the very first chapter of Numbers 20 that Miriam, who was Moses and Aaron's sister, has died and was buried. Why does he say that? We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But we're also told here that God didn't tell Moses to strike the rock. He said, I want you to speak to the rock. Way back in Exodus, he strikes the rock. Water flows out. Here in Numbers, speak to the rock. So what does Moses do at the end of his mental capacity, his stress in close quarters. He takes his staff, like God says, he gathers the whole community and he shouts these words, listen, you rebels. I love that. And Aaron is standing beside him. He says, must we bring you water out of this rock? 
And it says he raised his staff and he struck the rock twice. And water flows, but immediately after he strikes the rock, we're told that God speaks to Moses and says, because you didn't trust in me enough, I told you to speak and you struck the rock. Because you didn't trust in me enough to honor me as holy, you will not see the promised land. 40 years he's been wandering, now he's not gonna see it. So, so listen, two moments where people are thirsty, two moments where God provides water, one moment where Moses is obedient and one moment where Moses is disobedient. One moment, obedience that begins the journey to the promised land and one moment, disobedience that ends their journey. One moment where Moses points the miracle back to God and one moment where Moses says, should we do this miracle for you? And he takes the credit himself. What an incredible difference the journey of close quarters can bring in our lives. Now, let me tell you about Miriam. This is my favorite part of today. Miriam was Moses and Aaron's sister. She's kind of this incredible figure we don't know a lot about in the book of Exodus and Numbers. But what, what we find, she doesn't really show up in the story of the Israelites coming out of slavery until they've crossed the Red Sea, until they've miraculously been rescued. The waters are parted and they're on the other side and they're watching the Egyptians be swallowed up and drowned. And it says in Exodus 15 that as they're reaching that shore, Miriam picks up an instrument like a tambourine, and she begins to lead this worship processional with all the women of Israel, that Miriam, in the glory of God's miracle, becomes the worship leader. And by the way, we're told she's a prophet of God. And she begins this song, this dance, this moment, declaring God's salvation. And it's immediately after this worship, right? So, so think, slavery freedom across the Red Sea, victory of God over the Egyptians, worship led by Miriam, and now they're at Elam, this place of fresh water and palm trees. And and Miriam is there when Moses strikes the rock and the people are thirsty the first time and the water flows out. And in fact, again, the ancient rabbis are fun here. They play with this and they say that that rock that traveled with the Israelites, that was Miriam's rock. That's what they call it. And so we reach the second water story in Numbers 20. And again, the very first verse of that chapter says, Miriam, Moses and Aaron's sister, was dead and was buried. Now, this is so fascinating because this prophet of God, this worship leader, and perhaps uh, one of the closest relationships Moses and Aaron would have had as leaders of the people of Israel, she has died, the prophet of God, the worship leader, the poetic beauty that is Miriam. But she is not grieved. No one grieves for her. In fact, later in the chapter, when Aaron dies, the entire community of Israel grieves for Aaron for 30 days. But for Miriam in the first verse, nothing. So the rabbis say this. They say the water dried up because Miriam was forgotten. The promise of seeing the promised land was removed from from Moses, from the Israelites, because God's faithfulness, the worship they gave him through Miriam when they crossed the Red Sea, was forgotten. I want to say this to you today, friends. The water that you allow to sustain your relationships can either begin your journey or end it. Think about this for a moment. Every one of us has thirst. Every one of us has sources of water that we try to use to sustain us, right? Just like physical thirst, we have spiritual and relational and emotional sources that keep us going. And I'm saying to you, the water you're drinking in your closest relationships can either sustain your journey and fuel your journey, or it can end your journey. 
You have thirst, right? Like some of us, we thirst in different ways. We have dreams, we have expectations, we have needs, and we have desires, and those are sources of thirst in our lives. But the problem is often we're using false sources of water to quench those thirsts. We're looking to our spouse, our partner, to meet our dreams, or to our kids to live up to our expectations, or our job or coworker to meet our needs, or our own status or performance to accomplish our, our, our desires. I remember running a long race one time, and I, I was just worn out. Some of you know I've done several marathons and some longer trail races. So I was in this race, and I was about 26 miles into a race. I had about five to six more miles to go, and I was seriously considering just quitting the race. I, I've never done that. I've never been in a race where I said, I'm finished, I'm done, I want out of this. But I did that day. I was in the middle of the woods, and all I could do, the only fight that I was putting up, the only way I was trying to quench what was dry in me was positive self-talk. Oh, don't quit. You can do this. You can do this. You can do this. And my mom, that was my water. My water was my own positive thinking, and it was not enough. I was parched. So about a mile later, I rolled in, hobbled into this aid station, and I was wondering what and how it looked to quit the race. And when I got to this aid station, they had all kinds of food laying out and drinks. They had gummy bears, and they had roasted potatoes, which are so good in the middle of a long race. They had cheese quesadillas, and then they had these little Dixie cup shots full of water and Mountain Dew. And I just grabbed whatever I could. I was pounding food. I was just trying to figure out what it was going to be. And I remember I took about two or three of those Mountain Dew Dixie cups, and I just threw them back like I was at the best bar in the world. And I'm telling you, within moments, whatever it was I had been thirsting for came back to life in me. And I finished that race stronger than I'd felt in a long time. Thousands of years after Moses, Jesus is at this festival and he stands up and he makes this declaration in the book of John. Jesus says this, let anyone, he says this at a festival, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, I don't know what the context of this festival was. I don't know if it was a religious festival. I have to think there were a lot of people there. If you've ever been to a music festival, you know how crowded it gets. And I bet there were people looking for water. I bet in the middle of this Middle Eastern desert climate, there were people maybe standing in lines, grumbling, quarreling. Where's all the water? Why don't we have enough water? And I wonder if Jesus used this moment to speak a truth that they needed to hear. I wonder if he was saying, I'm the living water. And the water that you use to sustain your relationships, it's either going to begin your journey or it's going to end it. I wonder if Jesus was saying, you can have living water or you can have dead water. Now, I'm not going to lie. In, in that race that I was running, Mountain Dew was the living water. My positive voice in my head was not the living water. Whatever the sugar and those electrolytes did to me, put in me, that was exactly what I needed. See, when it comes to our closest relationships, I think too many of us today are trying to sustain and quench the relationships that we have with dead water instead of the living water of Jesus. We're trying to make our marriage work instead of realizing we don't have the power of our own will to keep it working. 
We're trying to cling to the good old days of our friendships. Oh, if we could just get our best friendship back to whatever it was then. And in reality, those friendships don't need the good old days. They need difficult conversations and forgiveness and accountability and reconciliation that could actually open the door for new and good days. We're trying to keep our relationships with our kids from falling apart when what we really need to do is surrender our kids at the feet of Jesus. I'm so drawn to Miriam in this Exodus story because she's the woman prophet who dances and sings after the miracle of God's rescue from slavery. She's poetic. She's beautiful in this story. And she is, I think, perhaps the reminder of God's spirit that the people of Israel needed. You see, when fear came flooding in or or complaints rose up, I wonder if as they wandered through the wilderness that maybe her music and her dance and her inspired words of God called them back to their Redeemer, reminding them of the source of their life together. And when she's dead, when she dies and she's buried and forgotten, their water, their living water dries up. Their hope for a future in the promised land seeps back into the sands of the desert. When Jesus makes this promise of living water in John, the author follows his statement immediately, just for clarification, saying, by this, by living water, Jesus meant the Holy Spirit. The water that sustains is the Holy Spirit. It's it's the breath of all created life being breathed into our own lives. Moses was disobedient in the second story of the water, and he claimed his own glory. Must we do this miracle? Because he forgot the Spirit of God. Maybe it was because his sister, the the dancing poetic prophet, wasn't there to remind him. Maybe he was so fed up that he was trying to deal with one more problem. Either way, whatever had sustained him before was no longer there. And he was drinking from different waters. Friends, in your close quarters, you need the Spirit of God pouring living water into the love that you offer to those closest to you. When you're trying to quench whatever's thirsty in you, your relational thirst, when you're trying to quench those things with false sources of life, your journey to the promised land of those relationships will end. This is why marriages fall apart. This is why kids walk away, why families break down for generations, why friendships become irreparable, because we are trying to quench thirst with things that were never meant to satisfy us. A living water we need is more like a dance than a quarrel. It's more of a song of God's breath, God's spirit, than a formula for bulletproof relationships. Quarreling is going to come. Testing is going to come. You're going to find your relationships in the desert, but the spirit of God stands beside us and within us and pouring out water that is living, reminding us that all along, It's grace, it's grace that has sustained us, grace that will sustain us, grace that will never let us go. I want you to meet a friend today. Some of you have met this friend. This is my friend, Matt Ness, such such uh, an amazing man of God. He's a pastor of, uh, of a church called One Church in Louisville, Kentucky. He's come, he's been a part of our new community before and come and taught uh, in our, in our uh, environment, in our gatherings. And, and Matt has so many words of life, but, but I had the chance to interview Matt and I, and I got to hear Matt's story of his family. And what I found is that as Matt was telling this story, I thought, this is the living water 
They're not perfect. They're not amazing. They're, they're actually fighting through things. They're broken in ways that you and I are, but they're finding ways to continue drinking from the living water. And I want you to hear this story today as we close, and I want to invite you to reflect, what does it mean to drink from the waters, the living waters of Christ and his spirit? Enjoy this. So Matt, thanks for being with us today. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, as you and I talked, I just, I just wanted people to hear your, your family story. Tell us, tell us about your family and tell us how you got to where you are right now. Yeah. So um, my wife and I met, I grew up in Minneapolis. My wife and I met in Wisconsin in college. Uh, I quick married her before she could say no. And um, started pastoring real young and had our biological son. Uh, about a year and a half after we got married. So I was 20, 21. And um, shortly after that, my wife had always wanted to adopt. And I listened to her, but I never really considered it, never really thought about it. And she kind of had a burden to adopt. We had just, my father had just died and we were really open to God leading in a different way, how sometimes tragedy can do that. And she said, I really feel like adopting. And I said, okay, let's try it until the door shuts. We ended up in Guatemala and pursuing this adoption of this little girl. And Anna came into our family. She was about seven months old. I brought her home uh, at that point, enjoyed being this family of four. And really, that's what I wanted. I, I always wanted to be a dad to a daughter. And I loved my, my son, and I had my little girl, and I was good. And so we were enjoying life for about eight months. And eight months after she came home, uh, she had a massive seizure, several hours long. We had to be airlifted to Minneapolis. Uh, we weren't sure if she was going to live. Um, they told us to drive slow so our son didn't lose his whole family in that day. I remember that being the word that was said. And so we drove slow, not knowing what we were going into and had just another moment of like, God, whatever you want to do, like you've proven that you're good. Even if my little girl doesn't make it, um, whatever you want to do. And she did make it thankfully and learned that she had pretty severe brain injury, pretty severe delays. Now she's, uh, she's 14. She speaks probably like a nine month old, um, she, she's physically pretty strong, but she's a little bit like a two-year-old in a 14-year-old body. And, um, been about the biggest gift in my life as she's just slowed us down. And I've become a radically different person by being able to be her dad. And so learned life with her. My wife and son wanted to adopt again, and I wasn't so certain. I was good, and then uh, I was reading a book and just sensed God say that we had a son, and um, we adopted my son, Durant, who is my youngest son from Ethiopia. Um, my wife went over to bring him home, fell in love with the country, felt that she needed to start working in Ethiopia, so she started orphanages over there like six months later, and two young boys came into the second orphanage eight months later, and those two boys also became our sons. Um, and so now we have 
a 21 year old, a 19 year old, a 16 year old, a 15 year old, a 14 year old. Um, that's kind of how our family came together. After they came home, about a year later, we moved down to Louisville to start another, another nonprofit in Ethiopia. That's kind of our, our origin story. So close quarters defines your life. Yeah, it has for a while. So I'm an introvert. I love people, but I'm an introvert. My family is not. Uh, they're loud and crazy, and there's like a hundred Nerf guns in my house. Um, right now, my oldest lives here, and my two youngest. Um, I told you some of my daughter's challenges. My 16-year-old has some challenges with mental illness and with trauma in his life, and so he actually right now lives in a facility that helps him process that stuff and deal with that. And then my, my biological son is, um, he's in college. So right now that looks different with uh, COVID stuff, but yeah, he's out of that. So. so I recognize, and one of the things I love most about you, Matt, is when we talk, there aren't easy formulas. We don't ever talk about here's how we're growing our churches successfully step one step two step three here's how we're doing everything right and well and and so i asked this question knowing there isn't a formula but i but i am curious what does it look like how do you guys keep that love pouring out how do you keep loving in the midst of challenging relationships um i, I can imagine you know you've got a daughter with with health issues you've got a son with mental health issues you guys uh, are doing hard work. You're pastoring a church plant. Uh, Nikki is leading a nonprofit in another country. So you're pouring yourselves out consistently. How do you, how do you continue to love the people closest to you well? Um, we don't quit when we don't do it well. Mm. That's not that it's some recipe or something, but there's a lot of days I don't do it well. Uh, there's been seasons where I haven't done it well. Um, but I would say that we haven't yet been defined by those days or seasons. Yeah. Um, we've failed a lot. We've tried a lot. We're really messy and okay with being messy. Um, and kind of expected to be messy. So we even tell our kids like, we're not going to do this perfect. We don't, don't even aim for that. Let's, let's continue to, or we'll talk more about, let's try to take steps towards one another. Mm. Um, and learn what that looks like and just have a lot of permission to be us like in this season uh, since i'm the introvert there's a lot of nights like last night where i'm like hey i had four thousand hours of zoom today i love y'all we've just talked for 20 minutes i need to go read it's not rejection of you i need to just be in my head and i need to voice that and they need to receive that and we all have different things like that um I just think there's something to grit and there's something to not quitting and there's something to not just projecting expectations. Um, I did that a lot when our family was forming and I hurt my family some by expecting it to look one way or expecting them to grow up in one way. And God's got a different journey for each of them. Mm. And so now to hopefully be in their corner and let God be their guide and live this thing out together that's a long winding answer but those are the things that we're trying to do 
Yeah. How have you seen God show up and create the things that sustain you in ways that you just never could? I, I love that idea of manna, partially because like these, these people had an identity that you wouldn't want. They were slaves and all day they functioned as slaves. And then for like 10 minutes a day, they went and did their work, which was like, go collect this flaky sweet stuff and bake it. And the rest of the day, they just had to live with that reality. They just had to be. We're a little bit like that right now, like, which is why you're talking about it. Um, and it is tempting to, for like five minutes, I can be something someone needs. It, it's not sustainable, but that can be like an identity that I wear. That can be, they know where to go, all of that. But I'm just going to fail them. And I'm not actually teaching them something. And even worse, there's been times where I've asked my wife, Nikki, to be way too much. Uh, I've asked her to be, I, I often lack confidence. So I ask her to puff me up and stand me up and um, to be just a thousand things. And I, I think what I need from her and what I need to be for my family is we need to give permission for the ugliness to come out. Like when I realize I need something, I'm kind of ugly and frantic mm-hmm. and there needs to be grace for me to be that. And then I need reminders to go to God with that yeah. and to, to see God at work in that. And it's messier to do it altogether. And it's messier to do it in a, as a parent. I, I kind of thought we were supposed to have it all figured out as parents and to present it that way to kids. Mm-hmm. And I haven't presented a minute that way to my kids. Um, <laughs> they know I'm a mess, but um, we need to be reminded that my wife is my wife and I get to enjoy her as my wife, but she's not my sustainer. She's not my source of hope. Um, I get to savor who she is and savor her personality, but like God needs to be my source of joy. and. Um, we need to kind of, kind of figure that out. Um, the other thing I, I would say that we can do for one another, there's power in language. And so if we can help each other identify what it is that we need, that, that's a really big deal. And family has a beautiful way of doing that. Um, if we can help, hey, I think right now I'm with my family, but I feel a loneliness that's bigger than what people can fix. Mm-hmm. And then we can bring that to God. Or I feel, I just feel anxious mm-hmm. and family living close has a beautiful way of hopefully kindly reminding us of what that is and what it is that we need. Then we can voice it, bring it to God and encourage each other in that. That's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, thanks, man. How do your close quarters feel right now? Has something died that maybe you haven't grieved? Maybe you need to feel that deeply. Have you failed to give God the glory that he's due, just like Moses did? Have you lost sight of the hope to sustain the relationships that are closest to you? Maybe in this moment, as we close, maybe whatever thirst you have, whatever dried up pieces of your soul, whatever brokenness you've experienced can be brought back to Jesus and handed off. Maybe today is the moment of surrender of those dried, those jagged pieces. And maybe you could watch God water them with his life so that beauty 
returns. Maybe today is the day. Maybe this is the moment where you stop at the aid station and you say, Jesus, I have nothing left and I'm crying out. Would you rescue me? Would you rescue me from my slavery? Would you rescue these relationships that are broken? And maybe this is the day that we remember what it was like to be saved and the day that we anticipate what hope looks like. Maybe today's the day that we drink from living waters. Let's pray together. Jesus, may we be a people who live fully into the things you've called us to. May we live hopefully, may we live graciously, but may we drink from the waters that you pour out. Father, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our friendships, in our neighborhoods, may we see living waters of life and joy spring up and overflow by the power of your spirit. May you cast our brokenness aside because grace reigns. It's in Jesus' name we pray.